even if they're destroying the decorations up front, that's okay. You can always get new ones. Well, I hope that your Christmas preparations are uh, mostly complete and you're ready for what God has for us in this Christmas season. Um, it has been, I don't know about you, but a very quick year it feels like. 2020, you, 2022 feels like it just began. And here we are already. Well, I um, wanted to start out with a question like I usually do uh, this morning and ask, uh, if you were asked to describe yourself, what would you say? What are some of the first things, some of the main points you would hit if someone said, uh, describe yourself, uh, talk to me about who you are? Uh, I think because we're a- I'm asking you in this setting, you're probably going to say, well, I'm a Christian uh, because I'm at church, so of course I'm going to say that. But someone at work or say you were at a job interview or you were meeting someone for the first time and they, you know, they wanted to know a little bit about you, uh, what are some of the main, and I just want you to kind of process that, think about that as we talk this morning, like what, what would you say? What are the unique characteristics about yourself? Because uh, most of us w- would acknowledge uh, that we, each of us has a unique identity. There's things about us uh, that are a combination of that makes us completely unique. I just think um, if you don't know uh, me, then you, 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 this might probably not come as a surprise uh, to you. But when I when I get studying, uh, I have attention deficit problems, and so I, I can rabbit trail. And I got on a bit of a rabbit trail this week as I was uh, researching a little bit of like DNA stuff and just like mind-boggling how it doesn't matter how many human beings will ever exist on Earth, no two will ever have the same DNA. Like, it's amazing. Like, that's incredible. Billions and billions and billions of people, and no two people will ever have the same DNA. Like, that blows my mind. That's how unique we are, how the unique design, uh, how God created us. But I think some, sometimes we don't talk, a lot of people will talk about, you know, you're unique, you have this unique identity, but we also have a shared identity, that's not something I hear talked about a lot, that, that we have a shared identity, especially as believers, we have a shared identity. Uh, I think it's natural, and it's, it's a good thing uh, when we're talking about Christmas, we're in the Christmas season, as we focus on the Christmas story, to focus on the love of God. Uh, you hear that, a lot of the carols are about that, a lot of the songs are about that, most sermons are about the love of God. Uh, we see a lot about who God is Uh, through the Christmas story. We get a lot about God's identity in the Christmas story, understanding that that God became man. I mean, there's no other religion where uh, a God would humble themselves so much to become uh, an infant, a baby, become nothing for his creation. Uh, There are some religions that would that talk about how their god steps into the world but it's always this like powerful story and he like lights up the world and takes people out and he does all these incredible things uh but there's none out there that are like yeah our our, our god came in a manger because there wasn't even any room for him and so we, we read the christmas story we, we get a lot about who god is but what i want to talk about this morning is what does the christmas story have to say about our identity Because anytime we talk about what God has done for his creation, uh, it's much easier to focus on God than the creation. It says a lot about God, but it also says a lot about his creation. And by our, I'm talking about humanity in general, not just believers, but all human beings. Understanding and embracing our identity can be the first step to changing the rest of our lives. A lot of the conversation around Christmas, uh, and, and whether it's sermons, stories, songs, a lot of the conversation is about what, we're going, what are you going to do with the Christmas story? That's a lot of, of what you'll hear, a lot of the questions that people will ask. But do you think it's healthier to operate from a sense of duty or from a clear sense of identity? Now here, here's my thought, and we're going to actually talk about this a lot in the new year, uh, but I think one of the problems that Christianity can have is that Christians tend to operate from a sense of duty, from a sense of obligation, which no matter how you slice that, is transactional. 
It's to say, all right, God, I did this for you, now do something for me. It's why sometimes we get confused when we're right in the center of God's will and we feel like we've got this close relationship with God and we're serving him and we're worshiping and we have this closeness and then something just destroys our life and we're like, what the heck, God? That was transactional. We thought because we're doing so good and we're doing so many things for him that he owed us a comfy lifestyle. That's operating from a sense of duty instead of operating from a sense of identity. I mean, you read Paul, and that guy operated from a sense of identity. He knew who he was, what God called him to do, uh, who God called him to be, and he was good with that. I mean, you think about Paul, you think about uh, he was an intellectual, he was a very intelligent person, he was an up-and-comer. Where does Paul write a number of his letters from? Prison. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't feel too successful myself if I found myself in jail all the time. And there's Paul. Because, and, and, and he didn't even complain about it. Why? Because he had a clear sense of his identity. He was operating not from a sense of duty or obligation, but from identity. In his book, More, which is a book I would highly recommend for everybody to pick up and read, a book called More by Todd Wilson. That's literally the title, just More. Uh, by Todd Wilson. I'm going to share a handful of quotes from him today. But in his book, he says, the problem isn't that we want too much. It's that we want too little. Instead of experiencing an adventurous journey with God and gaining an ever-increasing, I, I lost my slides here, sorry, and in, uh, gaining an ever-increasing clarity on who he made us to be, we become stuck in today. We fail to embrace and step into the story God has uniquely designed for us. See, there's a, there's a story. There's, a, there's something that God is doing that is unique to you. Uh, and in that book more, one of the reasons I love that book is because it talks about our general identity, but also our specific identity. Yes, we have a shared identity as Christians, but each of us, we, we all know that we're called to, to go and make disciples, right? We all know that we're supposed to serve God, we're supposed to honor Him, we're supposed to do everything for His honor and His glory. But guess what? Uh, that's going to be different for each and every one of us. How many of you are called to honor God, glorify God, and serve Him by preaching weekly? I'm looking for hands because uh, I'd like a break. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> that's how God uniquely designed me. Uh, for whatever reason, he decided to give me those gifts. If you knew me before I was a Christian, you would think there's absolutely no way that God's ever going to call that guy because I was petrified of public speaking. Absolutely hated it. But it's a unique part of how he called me. God has called and designed you in a very unique way because he loves you and he has a plan for you. And like, Todd Wilson talks about in his book, it's not that we want too much. It's rare that a Christian is ask, actually asking God for too much. As we talked about last week, when you're in the center of his will, you can't ask for too much. And he wants to give you those things when you're in the center of his will, when our wills are aligned with his. I believe the reason that we struggle with this, that we consistently operate uh, is because we consistently operate from a sense of duty instead of operating from our identity in Christ. There's three statements I want to focus on today and cover this morning as, we, as, as we're gathered here together. First, we are greatly loved by God. That's an identity statement that the Christmas story speaks very, very clearly. Number two, that our idols are robbing us. They're not helping us. They're not helping us cope, they're robbing us. And number three, that anyone can be used by God. So let's dive in, let's look at the first statement, that we are greatly loved. Each, and, and again, this, this goes beyond just Christians, this goes to every human being. They, that when God came as a human, it communicated and changed the identity of every person. I mean, it was already true. But man, did it make it real that every human being gained an identity by the fact that God came as one of them. His love spoke identity. It's good and it's true that the Christmas story tells us of God's love, but as objects of that love, that speaks a specific message to us. 
I think often of what I had read about raising girls as I was preparing to have a girl. If you don't know, I'm one of five boys. Uh, girls just aren't a part of the ward makeup and family structure uh, of, of my brothers. There were, my, my mom had six grandsons before Kiara was born, so it was not likely that a girl was ever going to be born in the ward household. Uh, so when we found out we were having a girl, I was like, okay, whew, let's prepare for this. As all I've heard is it's going to be a nightmare. Uh, but as I was reading about raising girls, uh, there are some unique aspects to raising girls I learned. One of the things that stuck with me is how often that little girls will look to, especially their dad, for affirmation of their beauty, and they want to be adored. And I thought, like, okay, that's pretty cool, because, like, I'm obviously going to adore this little girl, and she makes it easy because she's so stinking cute, and she's amazing. But my attention and my affection for Kiara speaks a clear message to her that she is beautiful and that she is adored in her father's eyes. Literally just giving her attention, watching her dance, communicates something to her. It, it's, it's my attention and it's, it's my effort, but it speaks a clear message to her that she's worth watching that she is adored by her dad, and that, that does something to her heart. I, I read this, uh, or I, I watched a video of a story of a guy who said uh, that he was at one of his daughter's practices for something, uh, and I don't think the girl seemed very old. She must have been, you know, eight, nine years old, and he said, you know, normally, like every other parent that's at the practice, uh, there's, he's sitting there on his phone, and his phone died, and he didn't have a charge or whatever, and so uh, he, he had nothing to do other than watch his daughter. And he said he noticed during the practice that every, he said, two minutes or so, his daughter would look up to see if he was looking. And like he was rocked by that basic truth as he watched time and time every two minutes during this practice. She looked to see if her dad was watching. And then it really hit him because he realized how many times did I miss that? Looking at my phone, just occupying my time, and all I had to do was look at her. All I had to do was watch her. And she, every two minutes, would look up and smile every time she caught his eyes because he was watching her. He was looking at her. He was, he was adoring his daughter. God speaks over us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are God's masterpiece. I, you might have to advance this for me, Eric. It doesn't seem to be working for me this morning. We are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things that he planned for us long ago. You are God's masterpiece. I know we did a whole sermon series on this before, and, and one of the things I encourage you to do was to often look into the mirror, look yourself in the eyes, and tell yourself, you are God's masterpiece. That does something to you after time and time after time. And some of you did it and you told me the effects it was having on you by looking yourself in the eyes and reminding yourself of a basic identity truth that we find in Scripture. It's not vain. It's not prideful to do it. God spoke it over you and He wants you to accept that truth because here's the secret to it. When you look yourself in the eyes, when you acknowledge that you're God's masterpiece, when you remember that on a regular basis, you'll be far less likely to not act like a masterpiece because you'll be clear in your identity. When the world calls you to act like garbage, you'll remember, no, 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 I can't. I'm a masterpiece. I'm not garbage. But it's so much easier to act like garbage when you look at yourself in the mirror every day and go, you're garbage. You're a dirty, rotten, horrible person. How many of us do that? Every day we do that. We look at ourselves and we're not satisfied with what we see. We're not happy with who we are. We degrade ourselves regularly through the, that little tape that plays in your head uh, or, or just what you see in the mirror. We don't tell ourselves and remind ourselves of our identity often enough. And to remind ourselves that the reason God sent His Son was to rescue His precious masterpieces in John 3 16 and 17 it says for this is how God loved the world he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life most of us know that verse but keep going God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him 
God becoming man is the greatest act of love the world has ever known. There could not possibly be a greater display of love. I know some of you are like romantics and I don't know, some of you watch like chick flicks and stuff like that and, and, and you get like all gooey about like, like these big huge acts of love. Man, God becoming man, there, doesn't, there is nothing greater. There's nothing bigger than that. It doesn't get any better. Hallmark has got nothing on that. Because there is no reason that a God as powerful, as holy, as infinite as he is, didn't just wipe us out when we turned our backs on him. Except his love. And that's incredible. That love. Because if, if you just try to put yourself in the place of God, this holy, infinite being who has no beginning, who has no end, you, you, you decide to make this creation and, and you form it and, and you put attention and you put detail into it and you create it and you create this whole world and create this whole universe for this creation and, and, and they make it like, what, a week? Maybe? Two weeks tops. One of my professors in college would always argue it couldn't have been more than two weeks that humanity made it. And I, I can explain that to you later if you want to know why, but we immediately turn our backs on him. The first opportunity it seems like we get, we turn our backs on him. Man, his love must be incredible to not have just been like, start over. Because I'm telling you, I don't know if you've ever worked with clay or done any of that stuff. I mean, if you start messing up right off the bat, you don't just keep trying to like keep going with that or else it just, uh, it all goes, it goes wacky. You crush it, you restart it, and you keep going. That's what I would have expected of a holy, infinite, powerful God, but his love continued to draw him to us and to rescue us. 1 John 4, 9 and 10 says, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. And I've heard people say, well, it seems like Christianity's uh, kind of like a, a religion of, of works since you have to accept it. I'm like, man, you, didn't, you don't understand the love of God. Because when you're hit with a power that strong, that powerful, that incredible, that infinite, that amazing, it's not work to accept that. It's work to not accept that. That's why I always appreciate those, uh, the quotes and people that have said, like, it takes way more faith to be an atheist than to be a Christian. This is so true. Not, not only just the insurmountable evidence, but the love of God, man, to reject that on a consistent basis, that takes a lot of work. To just accept this incredible gift of love is not work. Because God doesn't just show love. God is Love, as we talked about in 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. It says, we know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in His love. God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. Do you know how much God loves you? What, what does Satan bring up? about your past when I say that to you? Do you know how much God loves you? What do you hear? What does the enemy say? Oh, hold, hold on. Because he's always got something to throw at you. Your latest sin, your current sin, whatever it is. That has no relevance on the love of God. Yeah, you should deal with that stuff. But when you do, it's not like God's going to love you more. It's not like he's going to go, oh, okay. Now that you cleaned yourself up, now I can love you. God is love. It's so much easier to think about God as judging us and seeing all of our faults. We take a lot of our earthly father baggage into that relationship with God. And we see God as sometimes this like vindictive guy who's just looking, just waiting for us to mess up so he can put his thumb down on us and correct us or, 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 or you know, deal with us like an angry father should 
It's so much easier to see God that way. When you think about God existing in heaven as, and you living your life, do you, are you more often drawn to thinking about like, oh, oh, man, I'm sorry you saw that? Or do you constantly think about God loving you? Do you feel His love on a regular basis? That is what I'm talking about when I'm saying that we should live based on our identity in Christ, that love should overwhelm us on a regular basis. When was the last time that you just sat and thought about how much God must love you, how much love He must have for you? I mean, I want you to think about yourself as that daughter at that sports practice, and there's God up in the bleachers. How often do you picture God like a good, undistracted dad just adoring you? When was the last time that when you thought about God, you pictured him just looking at you and being like, man, that's my daughter. That's my son. Look at him. Like grabbing one of the angels and being like, check this out. Watch them live. Watch them live their life. Oh, man, they, oh, they mess it up. You ever watch the kids practice? They mess things up. But does that ever stop you adoring them and thinking, man, look at how cool they are. Uh, just the other day, just walking into the living room and seeing Killian and Kiara, they're just like cuddled up on the couch watching a movie and just sitting there and just, they're not even doing anything. Just adoring them. How much more so God with us? I don't even have perfect love. I, I have a bad temper. God doesn't. How often do you just sit and think about God adoring you? I mean, he sent Jesus to die for you. He loves you more than any earthly father has ever loved their child. I think this Christmas season, as you talk about Jesus coming in a manger, as you think about him coming as a baby, let that truth sink in. And allow yourself to see God adoring you as his precious daughter, as his precious son. Because that's what he's doing. He's not sitting up in heaven going, mess that up, mess that up, you mess that up, you mess that up. That's not who he is. He's up in heaven just adoring you. And being like, that's my son, that's my daughter. Man, I can't wait to see them face to face. I can't wait till they're with me. That's who God is. Living in the love of God, though, is impossible while we're being robbed by our idols. And we each and every one of us will tend toward idolatry. Why? Because it's so much easier to worship something we can see so much easier to give our attention, our passion, our desire to tangible things than to God. In his book, More, uh, Todd Wilson again says, Our idols have a unique and profound foothold on each of us. Their roots go deep. Only through heart transformation can we break their grip. What he's talking about here is our idols, man, they, they do. They have a grip on us. And it's not enough to just be like, nah, I'm going to try better. I'm going to try harder. That's not what's going to do it. Heart transformation. He, he goes on a little bit later. He says, unsacrificed idols will weaken or ultimately sabotage the adventure God has for us. There are many Christians. I believe they love Jesus. They have a relationship with him. And they have been completely sabotaged by their idols. Though they love God, they will spend the rest of their time until they see Him face to face worshiping idols because they've traded out their love for God for things of this world. Think of the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, 21 and 22. It says, looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. There is still one thing you, don't, you haven't done, he told him. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this the man's face fell and he went away sad. 
for he had many possessions. Think about the implications of this. Jesus is telling this guy, sell whatever garbage you have, and I'm talking about eternal life. And this young ruler says, ah, man, that stinks. And he walks away. Now, last week we talked about how there's a sin that, that uh, John tells us, I, I wouldn't pray for someone like that. What do, you, what do you pray for someone like this who's offered eternal life if all they'll do is trade in the worldly goods and they say, eh, no, I kind of like this world better. Kind of like what I have here. I don't really care about heaven. What do you, what do you pray for for that person? I, I think that's what John was getting at. But think about this. Jesus is saying just give up this one idol and what you can have is incredible. What is the one thing, or maybe it's more for you, that Jesus is calling you to give up to follow him? What's that idol? Is it one of your kids? Is it your boyfriend, your girlfriend, husband or wife, that job, TV, sports, pornography, whatever it is? What's the one thing that Jesus has his finger on right now is saying, you need to give this up. If you want more of this relationship, this is what you need to give up. I know you don't think it's a big deal, but you know it's the thing that is getting between you and your relationship with God. It's the reason you don't have that closeness. John 10.10 says, the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. The interesting part of how Satan has duped us is that we think that we have to put what God wants on hold and follow our desires to have a rich and satisfying life. Those of you that have journeyed with Jesus long enough, how's that working out? It always seems like, well, I know God's telling me to do this thing, but man, that's going to be really uncomfortable and it's not going to be enjoyable so I'm going to go after the rich and satisfying life my way. Any of you ever found that rich and satisfying life outside the will of God? Because I haven't. It never works. Even though it looks like, God, your plan is stupid. That's not fun. That's not rich. That's not satisfying. That'll never lead to good things for me. And so we chase our own thing. We go our own path because we think this makes so much more sense and then we wonder why we're so miserable. Wonder why we're dealing with depression. We're popping pills for all these different things and we're trying to fix it through relationships and through buying things and through sports teams and through all this other stuff and we're still feeling empty and we wonder why. Because in reality, to have a rich and satisfying life means to follow God wherever he leads. No matter what it costs, no matter what it takes. I guarantee you, if you could pop into one of those disgusting, horrific prison cells that Paul was spending his time in and ask him like, hey man, would you rather have a mansion up on the hill and, and renounce Jesus or sit here in human filth and sing hymns about God, I guarantee you I know what he would say. Because that's the rich and satisfying life. It doesn't make any sense to the world. They look at that and go, you're, you're a moron. That's horrible. Who would choose that? But he had a thought in his mind. And the minute he stepped into heaven and saw Jesus face to face, every moment in that prison made sense. Every second he spent in God's will and outside of what the world would call successful made sense and it was all worth it. It's by rejecting God's plan and the Holy Spirit's conviction in our lives we find ourselves frequently dissatisfied and wishing for more. Depressed, anxious, upset. Whenever we prioritize anything even when it's good, it robs us of the rich and satisfying life that God has for us. Now we all know that part of the Christmas story is that these three wise men brought Jesus gifts. And if, if you're 
really prideful in your theology. You're like, yes, but they didn't come until they were two. Jesus was two by the time the wise men got there. Yeah, we all know, okay. Uh, and we, we know that gifts were brought. And we say, and when Christmas rolls around, and, and we, we will tend to say, well, you know, Christmas isn't all about the gifts, but how often do we worship the gifts of God instead of God himself? And we, we, we like to say those things to make ourselves feel better around Christmas, but how many times do we worship the things of God than God himself? We want the rich and satisfying life, so we worship the rich and satisfying life, thinking that that's the goal. No, the goal is God, a byproduct of living in the will of God and being in relationship with God is a rich and satisfying life. And it might not look like anything the world talks about. Those guys on TV that tell you you're going to be rich and you're going to be famous and you're going to have all this money and you're going to have a private jet if you worship God is a bunch of malarkey. Because you might find yourself in a prison cell covered in human filth and that might be the rich and satisfying life. And I promise you, if you're in the will of God, you will rather be there than in a beautiful home surrounded by all kinds of toys and all kinds of expensive gadgets, driving a Beamer and all these other things that the world tells you is, is successful, you'll, you'll want to be in that filthy, dirty prison because that's where the rich and satisfying life is. Anytime we prioritize things above God, even the things of God, it robs us of that rich and satisfying life. Our priorities, the way that we invest our time, our energy, our passion, our money, does it indicate a life of idolatry or one lived for the kingdom of God? If someone were to look at where you spent your money, where you invested your passion, and well, there's a big reason why that one came up to me today because when I was preparing this sermon, uh, I was thinking, I was praying through this and I'm thinking about idols and one thing that kept popping up to me is people in their living room watching sports. I know it might seem like, oh, well, why are you attacking that? I'm not attacking it. But if that's where the only place where your passion comes out, there's a problem. God wants that as well. He wants everything that we have. If we're far more likely to engage in a conversation because someone says, well, the Steelers stink, and we're like, bam, I'm on that. I got stats to prove it. But we don't ever want to talk about Jesus. There's a problem. That's an idol. Now, you can watch sports, and it's not an idol, 100%. That, that can happen. I'm not saying that they are an idol. I'm saying that they can be. Anything good can be an idol. Anything that's not God can be an idol. It depends how much of our time, our energy, and our passion we give it. Our eyes must stay fixed on Jesus, despite all of the things which will always call for our worship. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. You might think that your idol is no big deal. You might continue to try to convince yourself, I know I'm sinning by having sex with this person, or I know I'm sinning by looking at this thing. I know I'm sinning by still being in this job. I know I'm sinning by not doing this thing that God has called me to do, but it's not that big a deal. And yet verse 1 here says, strip off every weight that slows us down. You might say, well, it's not stopping me from worshiping God. Is it slowing you down? Is it slowing you in any way, shape, or form? He's saying strip off every weight that slows you down. I don't know about you, but I, I, I hate running, first off. But I have gone running, and every now and then, like, I forget my armband, and so I have to carry my phone in my hand. You ever try to carry your phone in your hand while you go for, like, a longer run? That thing gets obnoxiously heavy. And whatever hand you're holding it in, that shoulder starts to burn. You've got to keep switching hands while you're running and stuff like that. It doesn't, my phone is, does not weigh a lot. I forget it's in my pocket half the time when I'm looking for it. 
But you start running a race, and even that little bit of weight that's slowing you down, you'll notice it. So maybe some of us just need to start running toward Jesus a little harder, and we'll start figuring out some of the stuff that's slowing us down. Some of us are just shuffling toward Jesus, and that's why the weight seems that heavy. So we need to pick up the pace. What idols are robbing you this Christmas season as you think about God's love, as you sit and you, you picture God adoring you? What idols are getting in the way? Work, kids, leisure, TV, sports? What is it? One of the greatest lessons of the Christmas story. Every year I read the Christmas story and I'm kind of blown away by the different aspects of how God uses people in the Christmas story. See, uh, I didn't grow up like hearing all the cool like Sunday school stories and all of those things. So like some of this stuff I look at and I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. Like if I wrote this story, this is not how I would write it. It would be like the smartest people heard about Jesus being born and, and God took the most attractive and the richest people and the most influential, all the influencers and had them tell everybody about, you know, he was born and stuff like this. And, and so what he does, it just seems so strange. I mean, imagine, I think sometimes we look at like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and we look at the religious leaders and we wonder like, why were they so against Jesus? Man, it made no sense. Like, I get it to a degree why they hated Jesus. Because he was a nobody. If God's coming down to earth, he's coming as a somebody, right? He's going to come as a king. He's going to come with the most expensive clothing on. He's going to be the most attractive guy in the room. He's going to be the most dynamic, the most charismatic person. What does the Bible say? That if you looked at Jesus, you wouldn't think anything. He wasn't anybody special. It says he didn't, his appearance was not that of somebody who was dynamic or charismatic or amazing. No wonder they got so angry with him because he didn't fit any part of the mold that they had for what God would look like if he came to earth. I don't know if you know, there is a guy in Israel that they're claiming possibly is the Messiah. They're like parading this guy around and he fits every, he, he hits every box of what the Jewish people would think is the Messiah. And they love him for it because Jesus certainly didn't. He didn't fit any of those boxes. I mean, look at some of the stuff of who he used. Joseph and Mary, first off, no worldly qualifications whatsoever. Not especially gifted in intelligence, in money, or even parenting techniques. You think you're God, you're going to have your son born into the world. He's going to be a fragile human being susceptible to many of the things that human beings are susceptible to, you think you're going to give him to someone who is like the best parent, who's going to win parent of the year every year, right? They literally lose Jesus. <laughs> and not for like 10 minutes in a store. Jackie was telling me she took Killian to, to, to Old Navy the other day and he took off running and she lost him for a minute or two. That's frightening. Imagine losing your kid for three days. And not even just that it's your kid. You lost the hope for humanity, gone. How do you pray for that? I mean, seriously, you're sitting, if I lost my kid, first thing I'm gonna do is start praying, God, help me find him. What do you say to God when you lost his kid? Well, hey God, you know that kid you gave us? Savior of the world? We can't find him. Do you have another one sitting around somewhere? No, look at Luke chapter two, verse 43 to 49. It says, after the celebration was over, they started home to Nazareth, but Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't miss him at first. I'm not a helicopter parent, but you give me the Savior, I'm going to be a helicopter parent. I'm not letting anybody even close to Jesus that doesn't look like they shouldn't be close to Jesus. It's RSV season. Don't touch my baby. That's the Savior of the world. Don't touch him. I'll break your arm. His parents didn't miss him at first because they assumed he was among the other travelers. But when he didn't show up that evening, they started looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they couldn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to search for him there. Three days later, they finally discovered him in the temple, sitting among the religious leaders, teachers, listening to them and asking questions. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. His parents didn't know what to think. Son, his mother said to him, how do you, again, how do you correct God on top of all this stuff? 
Son, his mother said to him, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been frantic, searching for you everywhere. I think there's an understatement in the Bible. Frantic, as you're looking for Jesus, the Savior, who you lost, you were given charge of. And Jesus says, but why did you need to search? He asked, didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? We read this, and I've heard people be like, yeah, well, of course that's where Jesus would be. Uh Uh-uh. You're a parent. You're wondering, like, where your kid is for three days. You're not thinking, like, hmm, well, he's the Savior. Of course he would be in the temple. No, you're looking everywhere for Jesus. And this is who God gives Jesus to. They're They're not winning parent of the year. You ever left your kid somewhere? I mean, we haven't left our kids anywhere yet. I've definitely thrown in yet. But I guarantee you it wouldn't be three days before I found them. If I did leave them somewhere, I'd notice a little sooner than that. But God chose them to raise the Savior. They were not particularly qualified. They weren't even, honestly, it doesn't even seem like they were all that good at it at first. But that's who God chose to raise Jesus. Look at the shepherds. About as low as you can get on the social ladder. They probably, statistically, were probably not even literate. They couldn't read a word. Their physical appearance and the smell alone would make you want to cross the other side of the street if you saw them. This is an honest fact of a shepherd. They smelled, they were dirty, they rarely showered, and they got front row seats to a heavenly worship session. And they're the first to know of Jesus' birth. I mean, this doesn't make any sense. If, again, if I was writing the story, it'd be like, all right, all of the religious leaders Jesus calls together for this heavenly worship, set, worship session. So they get to peer in, these religious leaders who are the, the pious of the pious, the, the holiest of the holy, they get to look into heaven. Not a bunch of dirty, basically homeless people. It's who Jesus says, this is who I want. To view into heaven and see this worship session. Look at Luke chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. It says, suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven praising God and saying glory to God in highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. Now I don't care how many fog machines or light machines you put on a stage and how close you try to get to that, you can't hold a candle to what they got to see as they watch the armies of heaven worship God and worship in this moment. I don't know what that worship time was like, how many years or months or who knows how long that worship session lasted because they're not in time. They don't have to cut it short for any reason. I don't know how long that worship session was as, as Jesus was born into humanity. But these shepherds get to see that. They get to view that. How many times have you looked yourself in the mirror and said, you're not good enough to be whatever God's calling you to be? You you can't be a missionary. You can't be a pastor. You can't be an elder. You can't be a deaconess. You can't lead that group. You can't lead that Bible study. You're not good enough. Can you read? because you're already better off than the shepherds at that point. I mean, this is who God chooses for this. Incredible moment. If you haven't watched The Chosen's little Christmas short uh, on on the shepherd, I I can't remember what they call it, um, what that short is called, but there's a little short about the shepherd that is like first to get there, and he gets to hold Jesus. I mean, they're... I like it makes me tear up every time I watch it. I'm just like, this is amazing that God entrusts the Savior to people like this. He chooses these people. If you know the story of Simeon, we don't know much about Simeon. We know very little, other than that he was a man from Jerusalem. We do know that he listened to the voice of the Holy Spirit and he followed the voice of the Holy Spirit which is why he was at the temple on the day that Jesus is presented, about a week after Jesus was born. And he got the privilege of speaking a word of prophecy over Christ. Luke chapter 2, verses 25 to 32, it says, At that time there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon 
He was righteous and devout and was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him and had revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. That day the Spirit led him to the temple. So when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord, as the law required, Simeon was there. He took the child in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace, as you have promised. I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory of your people, Israel. That's it. That's all we know about Simeon. It's just that he followed God. That's all God needs you to do. That's all he requires of you. Allow the Holy Spirit to be upon you. Listen to him and obey the Spirit. You don't need any other qualifications. You don't need a master's degree. You don't need a Bible college degree. You don't need a high school degree. You just need to follow him. Just listen to his voice. He'll lead you. He'll guide you. He'll direct you. He'll teach you. He'll equip you. He does, he does all the work. We just have to say, here I am. Send me. Whatever excuses you've been using to not follow God where he's leading, they are irrelevant. There is no excuse you can come up with that's bigger than the power of God. And so if you have the Holy Spirit, you have everything you need for God to use you for whatever he's calling you to. Be another example of how God can use anyone to advance his kingdom. Now, I, I, I love stories of like people that knew me before I was a Christian. And like I love seeing on their face when they hear that, like, I'm a pastor now. Because it reminds me how good God is. It's like, man, if, if there was a kid growing up that was unqualified for serving Jesus, a lot of people knew that was me. I was a ward. Our family did not carry with it any kind of pride uh, or anything like that. As a matter of fact, p- parents wouldn't let me hang out with their kids just because of my last name. That's how bad our family was. And look what God can do. I love, like, I, I never feel ashamed when, when someone would say, like, man, if God can use you, you can use anyone. Amen. <laughs> I love that story. I want to be. I'm glad that I am another example of how God can use anyone because then he gets all the glory. So what can we take away from what we learned about today? The reality of Christmas speaks volumes to our identity. 1 Peter 2.10 says, once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. Your identity is beloved. Your identity is adored. Embrace and reflect on that truth this Christmas. And because of that identity, remove all idols that are robbing you. Don't let anything steal your worship for God. Get in the way or slow down your pursuit of God. And trust there is nothing which can disqualify you from what God is calling you to. No matter how many times Satan brings it up, no matter how many times he reminds you how unqualified, how unlikely it is, if anything, that's a benefit. The more Satan reminds you how pathetic you are, how useless you are, how messed up you are, the greater glory God's going to get when he uses you. You just remind the enemy of that. Like, (laughs) I know. When he tells you how terrible you are, how horrible you are, how messed up you are, all the sin you've done, be like, I know. It's going to be pretty cool when God uses me, isn't it? That's the reality that he's calling you to. And if God's calling you to something now, don't put it on hold. There's a reason that he's calling you now. He's speaking that word now not after whatever you want to accomplish first. It's not like God got his timetable mixed up. If he's speaking it now, there's a reason now. Not like, oh, I get it, but that's just really not a good time for me, Lord. Don't you get it? 
don't you understand? I have to hit this, this milestone first. I have to get here first. Then I can do what you're calling me to do. There's a reason, whatever God's speaking to you now, that he's doing it now and not later. This Christmas, make a determination to make Jesus the center of not just your Christmas season, but the rest of your life. Every decision, everything that you do be revolving around the person of Jesus, who he is and the truth of what he's done for you. Replace your desires with those of Christ and enjoy the rich and satisfying life he has for you. And don't be confused just when things don't seem to, seem to be going the right way, when you don't get the blessings that these TV preachers tell you you should have when you worship God and serve him, when things might start going downhill as far as the world's concerned, don't think that you're missing the rich and satisfying life. Ask God if in the valley is where the rich and satisfying life is. And maybe it is. And you will find greater satisfaction and fullness and richness in that place because guess who's going to be there with you? Jesus. And I'd rather be in a valley with Jesus than in a mansion by myself. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Whereas we think about what you have done and how that communicates statements of identity to us. Lord, would we be people who operate not from a sense of duty or obligation, but that all that we do would flow from our identity in you. That we would rest in the realities you have spoken over us, both corporately and uniquely and individually to us. That we would know who we are as Christians but also how you have called us to live out the commandments that you've given to us in our unique passions and giftings and abilities and talents. Lord, this Christmas season, would you overwhelm us with your love? Would there be moments where we stop and, and you would give us that heavenly vision of you viewing us, your creation, in complete adoration? as you look at us and and you adore us, would that rock our world this Christmas? When we look in the mirror, would we stop saying negative things and allowing the enemy to speak condemnation from our lips? But when we see ourselves, when we look at ourselves, would we speak those words of identity over ourselves? until we begin to operate from that. Thank you for loving us, God. For the rest of our lives, would we live a life of gratitude for how much you loved us and the ways that you show us that love each and every day. Would you help us to also communicate that love to someone else this Christmas season? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Be blessed. Have a great Christmas. I won't see you before Christmas, but Merry Christmas. Enjoy the season.